The strongest drug that exists for a human being is another human being. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a hot mess express and proud of it. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I am an adult child of an alcoholic family. Welcome aboard this hot mess of a ship. Uh, Buckle up. It gets a little weird here. So today we are diving deep with returning guest, friend of the pod, fellow member of the shit show, Tiffany Carter. Tiffany is a badass business coach. She is the host of the Money Mindset podcast, Project Me with Tiffany. Her podcast blew the fuck up in 2023 and deservingly so. Just so damn proud of her. Um, Highly recommend everybody checking it out. Uh, So this is her fourth appearance on the pod, and I will include links to her uh, former appearances in the show notes. So first time we talked about her, her story. Uh, Second time was on toxic friendships. Third time was on how our attachment style influences our relationship with money. And today, probably my favorite of our conversations yet, we are diving into the light the fluffy, the lovely topics of love addiction and codependency. I was just thinking how one of the biggest gifts of starting this podcast is when Tiffany popped up in my DMs about two years ago. God, it feels like you've been in my life a lot longer than two years. This is my sister, my soul sister, my life support. I don't know where the fuck I would be right now without her, like through all of the rough time, like I've been going through it, y'all. I've been going through it for uh, nine months or so. And Tiffany has been by my side with unconditional love and support and acceptance and no judgment, no judgment. God. And to have a friend who gets it, who fucking gets it. It is priceless. It is worth everything. I just feel so grateful to have her, you, in my life. You know, sometimes when I get down on myself or I feel like, oh, you're such a loser or, you know, the shit that our head says, One of the things that comes to my mind is like, I can't be that bad because Tiffany really loves me. Tiffany wants to be my friend. And Tiffany calls me when, like today, she called me earlier. Can we just laugh? Can you please just help me laugh? So Tiffany's pretty awesome. So I must not be, (laughs) I must not be that bad. (laughs) Or maybe you're really that bad, Tiffany. (laughs) I love you. I love you so much. And I just feel so blessed that God put you in my life. And thank you for your unconditional love and support and for the amazing friend that you are. Because I would not be, I don't think I would fucking be alive right now if it wasn't for your, for your unconditional love and support. All right, I just had to pause there for a second to collect myself. 
Uh, can we please just note the amount of crying that I've done on the podcast? You guys, I didn't start crying until like a little over a year ago. I was stuffed up for a very long time. So if you are one of those folks, Tommy Bahama, that um, <laughs> that has a hard time crying or the tears won't come up, there is hope. It's probably annoying when I do like the snifflies and stuff. I've thought about that. Should I get rid of the snifflies? No, it is. Um, I gotta, I gotta uh, acknowledge, appreciate, and celebrate the fact that um, I'm crying. So, yay there. Uh, so let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the joy and shit show. That's my online support community where I host four weekly Zoom meetings where you can connect with other fellow shit shows the other biggest blessing of starting this podcast is starting this community because of all these amazing people that are now in my life just like tiffany i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the unconditional love and support that i've also received from this amazing beautiful community that really feels more like a family y'all are my chosen family and uh, you're really missing out, folks. You're really missing out on some, well, first of all, just people who get it, people who get you, people who will not judge you, people who will unconditionally love and accept you, but more importantly, some fun people, some cool folks, some friends. It's such a special place. We have people from the ages of, you know, mid-20s to mid-70s from all over the world with all different backgrounds, people whose paths would never have crossed ever in a million years. We're all just connecting on the shared experience of trying to heal from growing up in a dysfunctional family. And as I said, we have a whole lot of fun there too. So if you're looking for a community that is also fun, then damn the join shit show, okay? Let's do it. Yes, you, the person that's been wanting to join for forever. How about you do it today? See the link in the show notes to join. Uh, next, give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. So I have been taking a hiatus from uh, social media since, I guess, around Christmas time. Uh, really just for, it just seems so damn overwhelming. I just needed to take care of myself and uh, still just trying to take care of myself. I really need to, my goal is to start posting again by the beginning of February it's like scary. I'll just say that. I'll put it out here. It's scary. It's kind of like, I, 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 I akin it to, does that make sense? I akin it to, I liken it to um, when you need to call the dentist, you know, like when you need to, need to make a damn dentist appointment and you keep putting it off and you keep putting it off. And then it just gets to the point where you're like, I can just never go to the dentist ever again. <laughs> That's how I'm starting to feel about this damn social media shit. So um, and there's all this like, what do I have to acknowledge in my first post that I've been taking a break? Do I just post something and act as if I've been there the whole time? Like, nobody gives a shit, Andrea. <laughs> uh, so give me a little follow on Insta, Insta TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, please give me a damn five star review on Apple, on Spotify. Thank you. Love you all. We don't need an introduction. <laughs> Say what you were just saying about people, the dopamine of the new year 
running off and people freaking out. Yeah. What I have noticed in the years of like managing and coaching and mentoring people is, and myself included, like there's this dopamine high that kind of starts like right after Christmas, you know, it builds like who you're going to be in the new year, what you're not going to tolerate. You even like, say you're going to set all these boundaries with yourself, with other people. I'm going to eat kale. I'm going to not do this, do this. And then what happens right around this time. So as of the time of this recording, what are we in? Like it's the 18th. So it's like the third ish week of January. This is when that dopamine wears off because all these chemicals within us wear off, just like all the drugs I used to take all wore off and it's a rude awakening. And then people end up very humbled, but a lot of them end up in shame first where it's like, I can't keep doing this. I'm procrastinating. I'm not following through. I already broke my boundaries, my intentions, my goal for the my year. Diet. I haven't, haven't, yeah, <laughs> I haven't done anything. And then the self-criticism and they're like, I can't, this is where people can get to step one for talking like recovery. Right. But I feel like it applies to every area of life, like business, money, working out, whatever. It's like, I'm accepting that I'm powerless. I am in this loop. I've done this for years. Maybe I've done it my whole life and I can't do this on my own and I'm willing to do something different. So it's like, you're feeling that way right now. It actually is for you because if you're really that sick and tired of your fucking pattern, it's here to wake you up and go, I can't do this on my own. I need to join the community. I need to hire, you know, a business coach, coach like Tiffany. Yeah. I need to get a therapist. I need to get some accountability and maybe join like a group exercise class or whatever the hell it is to keep saying to yourself, like self-will, I'm going to will myself to do it. I'm going to wish myself to do it. I'm going to dream. I'm going to hope I'm going to think my way to it. It just doesn't happen. I wish it did. It doesn't. Me too. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, let's get into this topic. So we're going to talk about just the pain of love addiction, of withdrawal, of all of that. But where I wanted to start, and I thought this would be interesting for you too, it's like the clash between codependency, love addiction, repetition, compulsion, all of those things. And I've been wanting to talk about this on the podcast for some time, but it is it is the model that is used at the meadows. So basically it is like their overview of like all the disease and it, it's almost like codependency, but I think in essence it's childhood trauma. So basically like what this meadows model is, and this is um, it called the model of developmental immaturity. And that's basically what we're all dealing with. And whether you want to call that like complex trauma or whatever, it's basically the result of experiencing relational trauma during childhood, which can be caused by either enmeshment, neglect, or abandonment. And basically you could sum up developmental immaturity as being codependency, but maybe not from the standpoint of what a typical layperson would view as codependency. So what they define codependency is, you know, it's a disorder of immaturity and the five primary symptoms of codependency are one, 
We have trouble esteeming ourselves from the idea of inherent worth. Two, we have trouble protecting and nurturing ourselves. Three, we have trouble being real. Four, we have trouble attending to our needs and our wants. And five, we have trouble living life with an attitude of moderation in all things. And so those are the like primary symptoms of codependency, of developmental immaturity. And then I'm going to share this so you can see this. So then what happens as a result of that are these secondary symptoms, which are defined as like unmanageability. And so we have negative control, resentment and raging, spirituality issues, addiction, mood disorders, and physical issues, which we'll talk about today, and then these intimacy issues. So I thought that that was pretty kind of interesting. And like I've said, I feel like we're all kind of, it's all the same core root problem. It just manifests in a variety of different ways. I want to read you this quote that comes from Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. And it says, a love addict is someone who is dependent on, enmeshed with, and compulsively focused on taking care of another person. While this is often described as codependence, I feel that codependence is a much broader or more fundamental problem area. Although being codependent can lead some people into love addiction, not all codependents are, are love addicts. So the next thing I want to read from this is like it talks about like, so what the hell do we deal with first? Do we deal with love addiction first? Or do we deal with codependency first? And what she says in here, which I think is super interesting, is that there are, because it's all, you know, rooted in, in this codependency. And she goes, because so many people are codependent and have one or more addictions, the question of what should be dealt with first often arises. And essentially what she's saying is that she thinks that there are four really powerful addictions that have to be dealt with before a person can effectively deal with codependency. And those are alcohol and drug addiction, sex addiction, severe gambling disorders, and severe eating disorders. So those four things, you can't even begin to look at the codependency until you've dealt with that. But then she says that there are some other addictions in which as you start to like work through your codependency, you then start to come out of denial about these other addictions, which could be love addiction, work addiction, debting and spending addictions, nicotine and caffeine. So I thought that that was really interesting. And then one more thing. So she says, I just thought this would help set the stage. She goes, um, so not all codependents are love addicts. Love addicts turn to a person into a compulsive behavior within a relationship as a drug of choice for removing the pain of the difficulties in their relationships with themselves, as defined by codependents. Other codependents try to soothe their pain through other forms of addictive behavior. So alcoholism, you know, overeating, gambling, whatever. And now we can switch into talking about love addiction. And this is what she says are the three behavioral symptoms of love addiction. So one, a love addict assigns a disproportionate amount of time attention, and value about themselves to the other person to whom they are addicted to. Two, they have unrealistic expectations for unconditional positive regard from the other person in the relationship. And three, love addicts neglect to care for themselves while they're in the relationship. What say you? I mean, this is spot on in terms of the love addiction part. Not only was that my primary drug of choice. I had other 
comorbidities or whatever you call them, like with codependency, but that was a freshy high, nothing better than a freshy high. No surprise that became my main form of self-soothing. My mom is a love addict, like as severe as they get to this day, like she's going to die with probably nothing to her name as a result of her love addiction. Mm -hmm. Right. And like what led me to my bottom, I was hit and I had to be hit in multiple areas of my life. But the one that really set me over, it was really that love addiction being my drug of choice was ripped away where there was nothing I could do. And I had no, I called them a uh, back burner guys. Like you and I talk about all the time. I'm an addict, right? Like I have to treat these various things I use to self-soothe workaholism, exercise addiction, love addiction. I have to treat myself like an addict and repeatedly say it. Otherwise I can go into denial and tell myself all sorts of stories, which end up being very dangerous for me. You know, stories like, well, no one wants to be alone. I deserve to at least have this person. Well, mm -hmm. this is better than being totally alone. At least I have companionship. Who would abandon someone who's in need? Why would I leave someone when they're struggling? Because I'm not perfect either. I mean, I can go through all of them just like an alcoholic does to justify having a drink. And it is self-soothing because I never had to be alone with myself. I always made sure I had that backburn. I had someone on simmer, man, which is manipulative and using people, right? Like I had to take a look at that when I went through the steps and like do living amends with that. Cause that is, I was using people. It's a drug, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was using them because at least I knew I couldn't be that fucked up. I couldn't be that damaged. I couldn't be that disgusting. I couldn't be that like tarnished if I had a guy, right? If I had a boyfriend, but what led me to my bottom is it was unexpected and I had no one on the back burner and it was ripped away. And I was like cold Turkey after a drug of choice that I've used probably since middle school nonstop. I think that the thing that's been difficult for me like when I've checked out Sex and Love Addicts and on it, and when I think about it, like from, am I a love addict? I think the thing that's different for me is that it's not something typically that I've gone and I like seek out. Like I'm not somebody that hop from one thing to the next. And more so for me, it's like when I, it's about the repetition compulsion and being attracted to a certain type of person that is resembling my past, my parents, trying to save them. And then as a result of that, I then get trapped in the love addiction, but it just comes in from, it's like from a back door. And it, it actually, she talks about this in the book. She goes, it says, when we enter relationships, some of us are likely to do so as love addicts, seeking to calm the pain arising from the root problems untreated symptoms of codependence. We wind up with relationships that are painful, but that are almost impossible to leave because they do relieve some of the pain of the emptiness. Yeah. It's the crumbs. It's the crumbs, crumbs. in a bag. <laughs> it's the crumbs because it does take the edge off as anyone who is in, you know, recovery listening 
who is a substance addict, right? Like I dated many alcoholics and they'd say, oh, I just need like a wine or a beer. I just need to take the edge off. Mm-hmm. It takes, it does take the edge off. Mm-hmm. And I see mm-hmm. what you're saying by like, you didn't seek it out. Like you weren't, if we compare it to alcoholism, like there's the alcoholic who like hides the bottles in all the rooms and make sure they always have it on hand. And it's like, that's not what you do in the love addict world. It's more like once you start drinking, you're fucked. Exactly. That's what it, that's what it is. It is. It's like in between relationships, it's like, I can like put it down in a way, but yeah, once I start, there's no telling when I'll stop, but it's almost like, I just like stick to like the vodka or something like, or it's like, when I get out of it, there's not a desire to go and find something else. And honestly, as I've shared before, it's like, because there's nobody else seems good enough. It's like, nobody fills the hole, like in the same way. As the person that you are trying to detach from. Yeah whoever that person may be. Yeah. And it can take me a fucking long, long, long time before somebody else could scratch the same itch. And it's like, why bother going out with so-and-so or going on a dating app or even agreeing to go on a date or whatever, because I'm not going to get the same high from it anyway. Yeah. And it it is, it's like almost like a separation anxiety thing, or I I don't know how to explain it. Like almost like an object permanence to it. It's just, there's a real fixation on the person, just like there was like a real fixation on like it needing to be my mom to suit the pain. Like how you had, when you'd have sleepovers and you like, didn't want to not sleep with your mom in the bed. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of similar. I get very attached and very fixated on the person more so on and on obviously I know that it comes along with the feelings the chemicals that it produces but almost like the person and the chemicals I think are way more like enmeshed with each other than perhaps was your experience yeah I would agree my love addiction is very similar to my mom's which I did not like seeing that when I realized that this was not obvious to me, even though on the outside it was pretty obvious, that's the last thing I wanted to be because I grew up with it and the chaos of it and the destruction of it. And I was abused because of it. And granted, I didn't do the evil shit that she did because I'm, you know, I'm not a sociopath, but did I hurt a lot of people? I chose the guy over friends. I would say no to plans, lie about plans, cancel plans in order to be with my drug of choice, the guy. I would only be half listening on conversations, really looking at my phone to see if the guy is texting. That's hurtful, right? Mm -hmm. And I've made, you know, when I went through the steps, like I made amends to people and there's some people that chose to not forgive me or have me in my life, which I understand Mm -hmm. what I'm doing is I was abandoning other people to get my fix. And it's like, that's what happened to me. This is the kind of like the bundle being passed. I don't have kids, but like I was abandoning, I was doing to others, which would be the last thing I would want to feel myself. And that was part of what sobered my ass up because 
and I'm very open about like my exercise addiction brain, you know, that, that can start getting ignited and I have to be very mindful of the workaholic brain of mine and that disease. But I'm pretty confident around the love addiction stuff. Like I'm very stable in that area. And I think it's because I was so sobered up. And when I made those amends to people, people I really mm. cared about, it makes me cry. Like there's this, she's like how you are to me now. She was that for me in like college. Her name's Trisha. Wonderful, wonderful person. I was so sick in my 20s. I was so sick. And I did it to her over and over again every mm. time I got a guy. And I finally, like, I went to try to find her. I found her on Facebook. Like, I really wanted to make amends. And, and I did. And the response was harsh. Mm. And it's sad that I would do that to somebody because of my disease. But that also doing that amends process is also what woke me up and sobered me up where I was like, I don't want to be this person. That's fucking terrible. Like, that's not worth it to me. The drug isn't worth it to me. The high didn't feel so high. So then like even my normal hunting behaviors, <laughs> if we call them, like going to the clubs, <laughs> you know, and like doing all that stuff, like even when I would kind of like a little bit try it on, or even when I remember in recovery, I went with a friend of mine to Coachella, which that would normally be like a whole feeding ground for me. It didn't scratch the itch. It didn't matter. It didn't do it for me anymore. And that's when I, I felt free from it. It's so interesting thinking about your experience of making a nine step amends when it comes to these sort of issues and how Perhaps it's easier and more people are more forgiving when it relates to like I was an alcoholic or an addict. Yeah, I wouldn't know because I don't have the substance addiction. Well, I think just gene. think about it, though. I think that it's much more easy for people to comprehend and understand, OK, this is why this person was so shitty to me. They were in active alcoholism or they were in active drug addiction. But I think it's a lot harder for people to understand that this person was just more likely to, to think like, no, this is just a shitty person. Right. Like, oh, I was they're codependent. And that's why they did all of this mm -hmm. versus, oh, they were really addicted to cocaine and were really sick. There's a little more, yeah, you're right. There is a little more like empathy and maybe it's because of lack of knowledge. I didn't know either what real codependency is. That's a fucking addiction, right? Mm. That, in fact, it's deadly. I think it has way more of a stronghold on people than even substance addiction. Would you say that in all of your relationships... So like in all, all 517. Well, no, but like, I'm thinking about your, like the, like the two relationships that you had with people that like long, longer term relationships with people that were in active alcoholism and addiction compared to other relationships that you might've had that were like maybe a flavor of the week or like a couple of months or whatever. Like, was there like a different level of insanity of sickness of feeling like when you're in a relationship say with anthony who is in active alcoholism at like being in that it's like merging 
the codependency and the love addiction versus other relationships where it might've just been more pure love addiction. Every single person I was with long-term had some form of a dysfunction. Otherwise I wouldn't have been attracted to them. But now that you're asking me this, the two like main, I guess you could call them relationships I had with addicts, I got more hooked in by the highs and lows. Mm. So the abandonment cycle, right? Like the hope and the exhilaration and the possibility and the future tripping. Cause like they didn't drink for two weeks and then they're being amazing and look at the potential. And, and then the absolute crushing devastation when I would like come home or I'd be on the phone with them and I could just tell that they mm-hmm. used and the insanity of that, but the chemical reaction of that, absolutely that hooked me in more. It mimicked, even though my mom was not a substance addict, it mimicked my mom because she would have these moments, which obviously I know they're contrived now. I didn't know before, right? She was trying to hook me back in with narc hooks, but I thought they were like, oh, my mom would say, let's go swimming. Like little Tiffy would be like, Oh, and the way her tone of voice was like, oh, mom's being like normal. And then maybe the next day she was still being Mm. nice. And then I'd get a little bit of hope like, oh, it's not so bad. And like, maybe my nervous system relaxed and then wham, I'd be side whacked with shock. And then even after that pattern happened and I was like a teenager and I knew the pattern. And even though I wasn't shocked when she would do something crazy, even though I'd go, well, of course that was coming. My nervous system still was reacting. I was also addicted to that cycle because man, there was nothing that felt better to me other than a freshy high, but there was nothing that felt better to me when it felt like you're like back in the good graces or back in the zone or whatever the fuck we want to call it. It was like, my inner child, my inner teenager and me and Tiffany could all like exhale. And that's like a fucking shot of heroin. I've not done heroin. I at least didn't touch that. But like, I imagine from what people have said, that's what that feels like. And wow, did I do the other part of the dance just to get back to the heroin, which are the crumbs. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to ask too, was that when you were in those relationships, like with people hooked in people in active addiction, alcoholism, do you think that you, yeah, were you more accepting of crumbs in those relationships? Like were there, yeah, were you more tolerant? Did you endure more abuse or mistreatment in those relationships compared to other ones? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I didn't vocalize as much. So with other relationships where maybe the addiction, they were more like maybe they were unrealized ACAs or they were also codependents, you know, I would have much firmer boundaries. I would call the behavior out. I would be able to say, hey, I'm not talking to you and genuinely not talk to them. Even if it took like a week, I could do it, but not with the active addicts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think it's more, they resemble your mother more. Same, same in, same in friendships too. Friendships where female friendships or even male friendships 
where the person was an active addict, even though at the time I may not have been aware they were an addict because I didn't necessarily know what to look for. People were more like functioning or whatever, but like looking back, same fucking thing. Mm-hmm. What about mom. mom? Yeah. And I think that that's for me. It's like, I was only, I was really only gravitating. I could really only get those sort of feelings for people like that. Like I couldn't those are the only people that were really sucking me in is people that really are resembling my mom or my dad, like hardcore. What about being in those relationships with Anthony and looking for others? Like you, cause I always know, I knew you always had people like on the back burner, like would that provide less of a hit for you? Like, was that less fulfilling for you? Like when you were in those situations, seeking others, probably, I would think probably wouldn't like provide as much of the same relief as it did in other relationships. In fact, cause the first alcoholic was Chris. So mm-hmm. the two main like relationship ones, I didn't cheat. I didn't look to cheat, even like emotionally cheat. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I didn't have a back burner similar to what you said earlier, that high was so high. I knew there was nowhere to go from heroin where maybe, maybe now, what do you go to fentanyl? Like there's nowhere to go. So I didn't, which I think kept me in that sense, almost more enmeshed because I didn't have that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like, I was the blinders were on, but not in a healthy way. Yeah. So that's what I experienced. Like everyone, that's my experience. Just being like, like super to the point where like, when you go out, cause I know you like going out to like sports, watch sports and shit, like, and you'll go by yourself, which I think mm-hmm. is amazing. And it's not like you're looking for, <laughs> you're not like looking for something, but let's say a guy comes up to you. Who's like attractive and starts flirting with you. And you're in one of those relationships. Are your blinders on too? It's like, they could be the most amazing person in the whole wide world. So let's talk about what it was like leaving Anthony and like finally walking away and ending that relationship. Cause I think that that was probably a good example of the love addiction and the codependency really fused together. What was it that was like the final straw? And what was that experience of recovering from that relationship? Because I mean, obviously this was before you found, how many years before ACA did that relationship end? Not long before my bottom. I had to like go and use a couple more times. I would say a couple years. But because of him, I did find ACA because of me trying to go to fix him is by way of ACA. I went around and around that insane merry-go-round that we talk about in Al-Anon, which I'm also a proud member of. And when you, no one could have told me to get off. Mm -hmm. There is not one person. I started lying to people. I had no one to talk to at a certain point because I was embarrassed and I was in shame and people were also sick of me. And I didn't want to lose those people in my life from like burning them out. And I didn't blame them. Like I knew I was insane. Like Mm -hmm. at a certain point I was aware I hired a relationship coach who specialized in love addiction. And Mm -hmm. I was in therapy, by the way, all fucking during this. And I'm not knocking on therapy, but let me tell you something. That's not going to cut it. That's not enough. Mm -hmm. It's like going to our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Therapy or walking or going to a few meetings a week, that's not enough to get sober. That wasn't enough. So I, thankfully, I don't even know how I found this lady. I think you've told me about her. Yeah. And she helped me do like cord cutting. She specialized in codependency. I would go to her house and like it was in-person sessions. And so I started thawing out. It's like the denial, the veil of denial was being slowly lifted. And it's like how you were reading in the beginning, right? It's like we were dealing with the codependency and the love addiction simultaneously. And as I was getting healthier in the codependency, the tolerance for the insane merry-go-round kept decreasing and Uh decreasing and decreasing to the point where I couldn't go another round again. Mm. But what I had to do to leave is I had to set a boundary, commit to a final breakup, block on everything. Everything had to be blocked because this is someone in active addiction. He would show up at my, he tried everything. So you remember like the, what was the final straw? Like, do you remember what happened? It was just another cycle. It was, I think it was, he did start going to AA, which is the dream of someone who's the codependent with an addict, right? Like, oh, everything's going to change now. He stopped drinking, right? Like, and he would get a couple of weeks or so I thought it looked like it. But now I know like eh, most of the time they're just hiding it better Mm -hmm. until they're really, really ready. And one of my really close friends actually was working for him. He worked at a major company and she was working for him and they had like a, an outing with clients and he would went to an A. So he says, but he does confirm to this day. That's true. He did go to an AA meeting. He was dirty chipping as I guess you guys call it. And he was going to Hollywood and I was nervous as the codependent because when you are entertaining clients in the industry we were in, you are doing the steak dinner the fancy alcohols, the whole Mm -hmm. deal. He went MIA. Nowhere to be found. I was blowing up his phone, calling hospitals, reached out to my friend who she was in a weird position because that was her boss. So she was trying to cover, but I finally got her to tell me like, and he was obliviated and just blew me off. And I was like, I can't, there's something about that where he went to an AA meeting that mm-hmm. same, just hours earlier. And I was like, this is way beyond me. I, this is insane. This guy, like the denial was just lifted. Like this is not a month or two situation for this guy to get well. Mm-hmm. Like the sickness mm-hmm. is so high. I can't do this. 
So I set a plan and a date and gave some people who I trusted, which were like two, that date of when I was doing it. And I planned a trip to Spain so that I wasn't sitting there in isolation and I had to leave the country. Mm -hmm. And I left the country for two weeks and to like immerse myself in something positive, a different culture, something I love doing, something fun, which helped with the cravings. Yeah. Like, were you able to enjoy it? Totally. That's good. Yeah. I was really done. And that's why I say to people like, no one can make you be done. You're going to be done when you're done. It could be your 50th time around the merry-go-round. And in my case, I think it was hundreds of times <laughs> before I was done. And there is no one that can make you be done. How do you feel like the withdrawals were in that experience? Cause it probably was like a little bit different. The withdrawals were more during those times where it's like Friday night, no plan Saturday night, a Sunday night holidays. And there were times where I like half slipped, What's like an alcoholic knows they shouldn't be go an early alcoholic shouldn't go into a bar. So I'd go into the bar, but I might not drink. There was still periods where a little bit of that went on, but I at least didn't get hooked back in during those periods that were really, really tough for me. But also like the book you were reading from says is I use my other addictions, addictions to soothe myself mm -hmm. from this prime addiction. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I really buried myself in work. I started telling myself, which we do see people do, right? Where they get like obsessively like in shape, you know, like we're seeing uh, even on the housewives, right? You're seeing what's her name with Mauricio. Like she's like mm -hmm. insane, right? Like getting up at five in the morning, like no doing this, doing that twice a day. Like I did that. I'm going to get in the best shape of my life and like got fixated on that and obsessive into work in order to take the edge off from the discomfort of the love addiction, which is not a solution, by the way, that'd be like saying, I'm going to stop doing heroin, but instead I'm going to like smoke weed and like have some wine. And at least yeah. it's, it's better than heroin. Well, it's, it's take them as they're killing you. Right. And, uh, you know. I think it's what you had to do to get by. I know. I didn't know another way. And it was probably the lesser in terms of destruction wise, like self-destruction wise of my addictions, because the love addiction, if that was my only addiction, I would be dead right now or, or living in a tent if that was my only addiction, because I wouldn't have leaned into it. Thank God I had workaholism in there, which at least allowed me to like pay my bills and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't mind some of that right now. <laughs> Otherwise I, I would have, everything would have been totally, my worth would have been totally based on the external validation of that person. So at least my worth was divided up into three categories. Mm. My career my body and the person at least I like diversified I need to diversify <laughs> maybe that's the solution pick up a few more addictions people 
this is another question I have for you. I think this is interesting. It talks about the progressive stages of love addiction. And I'm wondering for you, if it's only in, you know, those relationships with the, the alcoholic or the addict that you really were entering sort of these more late stages of love addiction. So, um, okay. So first, the first stage is increasing tolerance of inappropriate behaviors from others, which then leads to uh, a greater dependence on the person, a decrease in self-care, numbness to feelings, then to feeling trapped or stymied. It says, um, if some sort of kind of relief doesn't come, love addicts may enter the the final stages of addiction, an overpowering sense of being stymied and helpless to fix the relationship or to escape the pain by ending it. Reality becomes even more overwhelming because love addicts have lost the ability to care for or value themselves. If love addicts enter this stage and begin to feel stymied, they also may experience increasing despair, disillusionment, and depression. This behavior can become bizarre and inappropriate along with the feelings of being trapped. They may experience a loss of power that leads to a loss of the ability to respond to what is happening. And then it says um, the final stages as love addicts progress through the stages of the illness. They feel abused by their partners at the same time. However, they are abusive towards their partners. One form of abuse is the inability to see the ways in which the other person is able to be there for them in occasions in which the partner's behavior is connecting rather than distancing. Instead, love addicts see almost everything the other person does in a negative light. For example, the partner may compliment the love addict, which is one of the ways to be present for someone. When love addicts interpret this, though, when love addicts interpret this through their own negative filter, they cannot hear the compliment. Their partner might say to them, you really did a good job in your garden this year. The love addict may respond, well, it's not really the way I wanted it. Last year's garden was better and get so focused on feeling inadequate that they miss the compliment. Um, love addicts also see how have trouble seeing how difficult they are to live with because they are so focused on how difficult the partner is making their life. Um, it says love addicts enter withdrawal, then obsess about and often carry out some plan of retaliation, but fail to see this behavior as offensive. Threatening or actually attempting suicide, telling the boss all about the gory details of the other partner's private life, bashing cars, dragging their children to another woman's apartment, and using them as pawns as manipulation to the partner, giving away the partner's clothes without permission, raging, <laughs> getting hysterical, all are the examples of the offender behavior. Um, as any of these continues, lud addicts themselves are often jetsoning jettisoning the relationship i don't really know what that means um i do feel validated that there are words that you don't know that makes me feel better about good, myself good okay <laughs> so what well, do you what do you yeah, say about what, that what's interesting when you read those is i didn't get to like cray cray land and it could truly be because i did have a good therapy i was an outpatient mm -hmm. right like i wasn't um I wasn't completely emotionally immature. So I had, I didn't go quite to crazy of slashing tires, but my mom did crazy. I was the pawn. 
you know, Mm -hmm. she would have me, I don't think I've shared this story with you. And if I have, let me know, but she would have me call whatever the guy is who was like, they were having a thing with even as young as like six, seven years old. And she would have me call them with her sitting there coaching me, but them not knowing and her like mouthing shit to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would have to put on an act of, why are you making my mom? Yeah, yeah, you die? told me, you told me this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my mom was nuts and did all of that. And I watched her do all of that. Man. And I did not do those behaviors. I did other behaviors where I was embarrassed and I knew I was crazy. Um, but really, you know who, if I were to say like those um, late stage symptoms I experience with more than anyone okay. is Mike. And he's mm. not a substance addict. He's an unrealized ACA and a, a avoidant dismissive. Okay. And so I- that's actually where I wanted to go to next is like, because here we go, like a totally different situation than any prior situation, any relationship in the past. So this is your most recent relationship. Probably and most significant. Most significant. Uh, like your dad, not like mom. And what would you say, like, would you say that there was more codependency in play and less love addiction in that relationship? Yeah. I would say so. Cause when you were reading those things about, I stopped taking care of myself, Mm. there was nothing he could do. That was right. I was definitely became like verbally abusive in that sense. Mm. Um, very hypercritical, um, there, if there was a compliment, I thought it was a manipulation Mm. or where was this, where was this person? a year ago. Yeah. All of a sudden. And there's definitely no manipulation going on. on None. (laughs) I like literally. And I was that person. I became very depressed. I felt completely trapped there. Like you didn't Mm. know me when I was there Mm. and trying to leave. It took me two and a half years to leave that house Mm. because it wasn't like overt abuse Abuse. it was just dysfunctional yeah right like this is this is not like you know some erratic guy or whatever it was just dysfunctional but my codependency was like I can't leave and then I would be worried about well what will happen to him is he gonna be okay and Mm -hmm. I mean I was literally sick over leaving it was the hardest thing that I've ever done. And I was in recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I also had the awareness of how sick I was being and how hard it was to leave. And I was like, I'm like, there wasn't denial, which yeah. almost made it worse. Yeah. It does because make it worse. It does I'm make it staying, worse. right. I'm staying. I know what I'm doing is not healthy and is self-abandoning to me and my inner child and the opposite of everything I've learned in recovery. And yet I felt paralyzed to leave mm-hmm. and I would set dates. I hired, I had to end up hiring um, a life coach. I had a full team and I had to set a date and I had to make myself adhere to this date. I, I had to, and I had to have people that I was paying truly a lot of money to because sure it me, happened. 
Yeah. Like for me, I don't want to ever like waste money or disrespect someone who I'm hiring to help me, you know, and that made me do, if I didn't do it, I wouldn't have done, I'd have put like everything on the line to leave. Like my life was, I knew my life was on the line. It was like a slow death that was going on. I want to back up to like before you got there. So like, I think in a nutshell, like we could sum this up as, you know, the reason that this was not the right relationship for you is because this is somebody who is an avoidant, right? Somebody who's not really able to provide you the emotional intimacy that you're looking for in a partner. At what point in the relationship? Because obviously, you know, you try to you don't just throw in the towel immediately, right? Like in any relationship, like you try to see like, okay, like, can this be fixed? Like, what what can we do here? Like, at what point do you think that ran out where it was like, okay, like there, there's nothing I can do. Like, there's no hope here. Like, at what point do you think that, occur- like, when was that clear after and, year and a, Yeah, after a year and a half of couples therapy, and how far into the relationship was couples therapy? I would say year three. So year three and were you probably, already living together? Yes. Co-own a house, live together, engaged. Um, you learn a lot about someone when you have a shared responsibility of a home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you learn, I mean, you learn everything, right? There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And very, but always very willing to go to therapy then in, you know, in therapy would agree to all of the things that the therapist would ask, does this feel like something you could do? You know, like all the therapy talk would agree. Um, and then never would follow through over and over and over and over again. And then the therapist said respectfully to us both. I cannot continue to take your money or see you as a couple unless Mike, you get a therapist and it needs to be a male and it needs to be a male that specializes in blah, 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 which mm. I'm happy to give you some referrals. Um, but I can't see you guys as a couple anymore. It's like a stalemate. You mm-hmm. have one person who's doing all the work and the willingness and you have the, and you have someone else who's not doing enough. And he of course promised in the session to do all this. This is someone who has the money and amazing insurance. So there's no excuse. Um, and never did it. And it was devastating. Mm -hmm. It was like back to my, my parents, right. The relationship of, I want to be, I want to be loved enough where someone will fucking, whether it's get sober, someone or someone getting emotionally Mm. sober. Aren't I worth it? Person, like you have something really great here. Like, aren't I worthy of this? Oh, come on. And I, I get it now. It's not, it's because they don't think they're worthy of it. And I know it's not about me, but wow, does it really mimic that and feel that way when you're in it? And as an ACA, we don't really have the highest of expectations. I mean, he could have gone, you know what I mean? Like he could have had a 10% improvement and that would have been a lot for me. Right. I didn't have some expectation that he would go, you know, from a 
avoidant dismissive attachment to secure attachment, like by the end of the year, like I was willing to accept a lot of these, whatever you want to call them, like character flaws, dysfunction within him, but he had to at least be trying and taking action. And I wasn't even worth that. And there was the sexual component. He also completely went into avoidance on that. So now I'm disgusting. Mm. And I had no back burner drug of choice of someone pinging me once in a while, which kind of gave me a little bit of a hit. Like, you know, I'm still, I still got still it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Like I, you know, and I wasn't going to go into my old behavior of then going on the apps when I'm in a relationship in order to get like some hits from the apps. I, I didn't like cheat or do anything like that. Um, I couldn't because I was even afraid to do that because I must be so fucking disgusting mm. that this person doesn't want to be sexually intimate with me or even like go get therapy or even give me a massage, which was one of the um, assignments, like a non-sexual massage. And so then my, I was so disempowered, it made it harder for me to leave. Yeah. I don't even know though, like if you would have sought those other things out, like if it wasn't that you felt it, I just feel like you were at a point in your recovery and in yourself. I just don't see you as, um, I don't know. I think like, yeah, I don't think I would either. You wouldn't have done it. No, I wouldn't. I, I don't feel like I would. It didn't, it really didn't even cross my mind yeah. truly. Um, yeah, but it made it harder to leave because when, you know, your self-esteem and you're so depressed and everything's hard when you're in that state of mind. Mm -hmm. And as like anxious attachers and as people who like, we'll fucking jump through hoops. What book do you want me to read? What therapist do you want? It's so hard to not like, it is incomprehensible to us. Like what you were saying, like, don't you see that you have something so amazing and so great here? Like it's impossible to comprehend and not take it personally and make it about us because we'll go to the ends of the earth to make something shitty work, let alone something good. What do you feel no, like? Ryan, was, uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, what do you what do you feel like has allowed you to come to a place where you realize now that that's not the case, that it's not about you and that this person is truly incapable of doing that for anyone? Like what has allowed you to come to terms with that? To leave. Yeah. The separation when you're not around that energy constantly and, and even in phone communication, we can, the fog lifts, mm. you know, we can, so even though it's very painful and uncomfortable and there's like codependent withdrawals and all that crap that I went through. I started that separation allowed me to see the reality of the situation and take a step back because I wasn't so much in it mm. and taking away the, cause we share a dog, right? So it was like, I still had some communication with him and it, but I didn't for a period of time. It was like no contact. And I, for how long do you I, think? By my boundary. 
Well, I don't recommend what I did because I almost drowned myself in the ocean. Um, I did September through the holidays. Yep. Don't recommend the holiday part that without having a support system, that was not a good, that was not a good plan. I like white knuckled it barely. It's not a, not a great plan. Um, but that separation was necessary. And then there was heavy boundaries that I stated and adhered to and had the accountability of having, you know, having a coach where it was like, I, I kept my side of the street clean. Mm -hmm. And then when we would talk a piece of advice I got that was really helpful that kept me out of like the codependent thinking of trying to fix, trying to fix, trying to figure it out. You know, like we think we're like psychologists was observing, detach with love and observe. Mm. And when I would observe things, I realized this is someone who doesn't consistently even show up for himself or his own children. This is someone who's detached from himself and, you know, like emotionally, why would he be able to attach securely to me if he can't attach securely to himself and without judgment, you know, I wasn't like, oh God, like he just did that. Like how messed up or he just said that it'd be like more of curiosity, like, oh, that's interesting, but I couldn't see it when I was fully in it. And that also allowed me to have the relationship that I have with him today. Yeah. Which I want to um, and acceptance upon. for him because mm -hmm. it really was not about me at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you feel like that was just kind of like a slow build of, you know, being able to spend more time with him? I mean, I think that you, it's interesting because, you know, you'll spend holidays with him or, and I asked you, I say like, what are your, what is it like? Like, what are the conversations like when it's just the two of you sitting at dinner? Like, is it weird? Is it awkward silence? And you know, then you're like, no, it's, it's pretty basic. It's pretty surface level, matter of fact type conversation, but that it doesn't feel awkward and it feels okay. It feels safe. I don't, cause I don't have an agenda. I'm not mm -hmm. being a codependent. Mm-hmm. I take him at face value and this is who he is. That doesn't mean like I would allow him to do something right. And not, you know, and not set a boundary or call him on it. That wasn't cool. Um, cause some of the shit that comes out of his mouth, cause there's like, this is someone who's definitely on the spectrum somewhere can be mm -hmm. like shocking. And it's like, okay, like that wasn't very nice, but I can even laugh about it, right? Like, this is not personal. It's not about me. I'm in acceptance for who this human being is. And therefore, I can also appreciate his great qualities hmm. and the wonderful things that he does do for me and does do for Chubbs and, you know, does do for other people. I'm able to like see those now. Whereas before, I was so angry and like, this needs to be fixed that I need you to be a certain way for me to be okay. To me, that is the crux of codependency. Mm. I need you to be okay and you to be a certain way and do these certain things and operate in this, that, or the other in order for me to be okay. And if you don't, I'm fucking resentful. I'm angry. I'm going to manage, manipulate and mother my way to get it. 
Mm. And I don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then I can see it for what it is and appreciate it. Are there any moments where the anger or the resentment or anything like rears its ugly head or just like the, the, the hurt of, you know, what, why couldn't, why, why wasn't I good enough? Or why couldn't you do that for me? I mean, cause I would think, I don't know. I think it would be weird if it never, ever, 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 ever came up. It comes up when I am not prioritizing my well-being and and recovery so Mm -hmm. when I'm personally restless irritable and discontent so I already have an internal you know something brewing and then I will start I can start shit with him or maybe he'll say something like um because he'll say like love you right? Like you and I say, like, love you, right? Like he'll say, love you. Mm-hmm. And then if I'm in that kind of a mode, I'll, I'll snap. I'll say something that I have to end up, you know, making amends for how I said it, but I'll end up snapping. Like, how is it? You know, let me ask you a question. That's usually how it starts with me. I'm like, let me ask you this. How is it that, how is it that like you love me and we get along so well, and like da 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 da, but like you still have like no desire to like maybe even like attempt at like really giving this a shot. You know, I'll go down that path, but I have to own my part in that. Has there ever been any sort of like a kind of like um reflective, like matter of fact type conversation like with him about like what happened? zero classic avoidant dismissive to the T and unrealized ACA. No, because the, uh, not that I'm a psychologist, but like I pretend I'm basically, I mean, we are, we know more than most of them. (laughs) (laughs) That would be opening himself up for potential um, danger to do that. So he has to stay um, a steel trap in complete avoidance to even open that up a crack could could be a setup for him so it's all stuffed down i have well, do never think heard that him say a, anything do you think that there's the awareness on his part though i feel like there is i would love to think that there is I have not seen any true signs. And when I have, I don't know, is the right term, like propagated it when I've, um, I don't know, tried to pull it as we do (laughs) try to like pull it out because I'm being needy and I'm wanting to at least know he gets it because, because I want to, I want to, I want to have that for me to feel better when I've done that. And I've done that many, many times he'll go along with it, but it never scratches the itch for me because it's not, um, coming up from him on his own. Yeah. It's the same as what he did in therapy said. Yeah. People pleasing, right? Like said, yes, agreed, promised and no follow through. Mm-hmm. So on his own literally has never said any statement that shows any acknowledgement or awareness or truth of the situation. Mm. it's so fascinating it's most fascinating bizarre person i've ever met and identical to my father in a really weird way yeah and you know i want to 
I just remember back some of the texts I received from you like around Christmas time, just about how just the acknowledgement of how good of a person he is. You know? And he genuinely is. And so is my father. Hmm. Gentle, kind, patient, loving, um, man, a few words, but when there was a contribution to a conversation was actually like really insightful. They are so, it is so undeniable. Mm. The same thing. I was trying to get dad to see me, mm. see me, just fucking see me, see me love. I, like, I knew my dad loved me. I know Mike loves me. I want you to see me. I want you to get it. I want you to see my pain. I want you to show up. I want you to fight for me. Like, I want to mm. shake you exactly how I felt with my dad. Mm -hmm. Fight for and me. I did not succeed in acting this out with Mike. Mm -hmm. And I tried everything and mm -hmm. I did not, it did not work. The plan did not, did not work for me. Mm. Well, this has been great. Anybody that listens to my podcast should listen to your podcast too. Even if you're not a business owner, there's plenty to take away. I think that could help in any person's life. What, um, what are you excited about? Do you have any interesting interviews that you're looking forward to people hearing? What I'm, excited about really concentrating my brand and my podcast on are these how the childhood wounding is directly connected to the money wounds mm -hmm. it's undeniable the correlation i know money is a very sensitive and difficult topic for most people but especially for people coming from dysfunctional families and me releasing the course, you know, the make more work less, which it goes, peels that back. The response that I've gotten from people is remarkable. And I'm going to lean into that more because that is one of the ACA promises that we'll be able to, you know, be financially fulfilled and like responsible and take care of ourselves. Mm. And it is what happens for people when they start healing their relationship with money, you start seeing how empowered they are in other areas of their life. So I'm going to be having on like more guests to discuss that. I'm going to be discussing it um, deeper and like peeling back these common behaviors and these ingrained beliefs around money, around self-worth, around net worth, around it's really around receiving hmm. when it really, when we peel it all back, we were so starved. We accepted crumbs. So then we accept crumbs of abundance, right? Or we trade so much work, our asses off, tolerate unacceptable behavior in the workplace, do all of this shit in order to get some, you know, paycheck with a million taxes taken out of it. That really doesn't change our lives. Like, the the dotted line is really clear mm -hmm. and it is part of recovery I just know a lot of people don't like going there but that makes it so interesting to me of why why mm. wouldn't we go there why is there such an avoidance because whatever we avoid to that level is exactly a key area that we need to focus on healing no shit can't relate neither can kiki's been with us the whole time project me with tiffany go listen to it Atta 
Keeks, baby Keekers. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's because she hears me. She can't hear shit. She's deaf. Wow. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> Love you.